Maybe that is the wrong word. My English is not so good. I think it would be half as much fun alone. Shouldn't you see the promised land? Well, I love it when they do that. Now I have two reasons to see it. I just thought of it. Isn't that what it is? It was like watching a dog play the piano. Well, you know what they say. The medium is the message. People want to be told what to do so badly that they'll listen to anyone. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We gear our conversation about the show around the conversation the show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and a lot of other things that make us mad. How, how was that? Well, our first time doing like a, a legit official intro. How do I, did I pull it off? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can workshop it. Yeah, yeah, we, well, that's the thing. We can always have, the, the listeners can let us know what they like, dislike, and all that. Sure. It's a, it's a democracy I mean, over here. It's a cooperative. We got, like, what, at least 90-something, well, I guess closer to, like, 80-something episodes left. So, hopefully, right. in that time, we can figure it out. I think there are 92 episodes of Mad Men, and in this total, is the sixth yeah. one. Yeah, total. so. And then, we're at, so we have 85, 80, 86? like that, yeah. Math. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah yeah so uh you know you're will ashton writer at collider.com how are you doing will ashton hello yeah i'm all right and i'm john agroni from the young folks uh we do another podcast called cinemaholics where we talk about films every week now our third chair michael overholz he is traveling that's why he wasn't on the last one so we're gonna hope to have him back but he, he's having a pretty busy time he said things are gonna chill out for him pretty soon but oh. I, have, I have a feeling well he's not gonna have a hard time catching up on mad men because <laughs> it's a very bingeable show Sure. And he's seen it before, right? Yes. Not as many and, times as you, but yeah. And, and it's honestly, Will, it's so hard to like do this, talk about this show with you. And then I have to be like, oh, I can't just watch 10 more episodes. It's very annoying. Well, sure. It's it's good. It's good because we're pausing. We're giving that breather that we need. And it's important for like analysis and all that other boring stuff, right? If you say so. I, I say it. I believe it. Oh, yeah. There was one other thing I wanted to check off before we talk about this episode called Babylon. And that is that you and I both have uh, received the book where you got it at the library. I got it through my local bookshop, Mad Men Carousel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by Matt right Zollersites. Yeah. By Matt Zollersites. I'm holding it up to the camera that the listeners can't see. But uh, The Complete Critical Companion. And I've, I'm already knee deep in it. I'm, a, I'm caught up. But I think... Uh, Oh, you, uh, did you did you read this episode uh no no i'm behind uh oh yeah you got to get on that so you're caught up as far as this episode is concerned i am yes okay uh-huh. so you could be sneaking in some of his thoughts in this episode i wouldn't even know it i could but then you'd figure it out later and give me all kinds of trouble i'd be um, reading it my handshake and being like he lied to me <laughs> said um, these were his thoughts Right, right. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like how um, when in Kind Crossgrove in this episode is like, did you know? It's just like, if you're going to quote Matt's All Our Sites' book. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you are. We'll holding up the book yourself. Although my, my copy doesn't like have mine. a picture of the copy of the book on the back. Like yours I like does. mine, yeah, because like mine, um, I don't know if it's a library thing or if it's the way it was published with the hardback, but mm-hmm. it's like selling the book. So it has like a book cover right. on the cover. And I have it says the like, paperback. And in fact, we'll... You know, I I haven't told you about this. You can kind of see behind me on the camera. So 
when I picked up this book from the bookstore, <laughs> um, they kind of gave me a bunch of other copies. And I was like, Why? oh, you don't have to do that. And they were like, well, we ordered these and we don't think we're going to sell them. Oof. So and th- th- this person's so nice. Um, but they were like, you should just give these books away, like through your podcast thing. Oh, okay. And I was like, really? Are you sure? And they're like, yeah. So, well, I guess we can do that. We, we can All give right. away. We, we have, I think I have four, four extra copies of this book. Okay. And I, I don't have a use for them. Um, I have, one's good. Sure. So listeners well let's let's workshop a way to give these out um mm-hmm. so i'll, I'll yeah, air fun. that out now and well we can discuss it and yeah, maybe the details yeah i mean uh, we'll have to figure out what we can do for a giveaway that's very uh i've never i don't think i've ever been a part of a giveaway as far as like the actual giving away process so that'll be fun. i have for my own books oh, okay. it's not it's not too complicated we can sure. figure it out cool but all right you want to talk about this episode of babylon if you, if you want, yeah. I want it. I want to do it. Um, so this is the sixth episode of Mad Men. And this is uh, definitely one of those episodes. I was I was reading some other essays from some writers here and there. Uh, one of them being Emily Vanderwerf uh, for the AV Club. I read her take on this episode. Uh, Emily yeah. St. James. Em- Sorry, Emily St. James, excuse me. And she, she, she said something kind of interesting about this show that kind of like matched up with my notes a little bit. She didn't say this, but it's kind of what she's getting at. I view this episode as kind of like the demarcation between, I think the first five episodes of Mad Men are kind of like a prologue. They're really kind of figuring out, I think Matthew Weiner especially, kind of figuring out like the mood, the atmosphere of the show. The first five episodes, we've talked about this already. They have a lot of like, hey, it's the 1960s jokes, you know, and it's a show that kind of is just sort of like introducing us to the world, but it's not really doing any like really sharp like commentary on anything yet. It's just kind of like showing us like, this is how sexist it was back then. This is like really what the environment was. And it's putting the characters kind of on a board and arranging them. But then I think from this episode on, we're going to start to get way more of like a a critical lens. We're going to get way more like action in the show there's going to be more happening and i think this is one of those episodes that for sure is where people go from i think people start to get hooked definitely on the fourth and fifth episode i think this is the episode where people are just like point of no return honestly um but what, what do you think because i mean you you're re-watching the first season you haven't seen seasons two through seven um did, did you have do you remember like having any similar experience with these episodes or was it too long ago um as far as my memory of the show goes i feel like when I think back on it, there are like, you know, a handful of scenes I remember. And I usually point them out on the show, but uh, I feel like they'll come to me like as I'm watching the episode. Like I'll see something and like some scenes will be like I'd never seen them before. They're totally new. But in this case, like uh, the scene in the staircase with um with Don, like that, I remember as soon as it was happening, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this scene. Uh, from when I watched the first time. And then the lipstick scene later in the episode, when it was happening, I was like, oh, yeah, this I remember really well, uh, especially like the like uh, the two perspectives of it. I'm trying to be a little vague as far as uh, things we'll discuss later. But, you know, like that stuff is like kind of instantly like it was like snap my fingers. I remember them really well. But it kind of took me like watching episode to remember them. But yeah, so it kind of comes and goes. Yeah, I, but, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. I I find it very interesting how our memories work because 
yeah, I, I remember like rewatching the show as well, like a couple of years after I'd watched it for the first time and going back through the first season and being a little bit like, wow, there's a lot of stuff sticking out here that I had forgotten. But there were other things that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this completely because it really, you know, that one mm-hmm. scene you're talking about in particular, it's one of my favorite scenes of the first season. So yeah, it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Anything to add, though, before we start recapping? Is there anything you wanted to get off your chest to kind of set things up? Um, kind of going off of what you said, I do think uh, upon rewatch, it's a little bit more apparent when like the show is spelling out its themes. Like I felt like when I watched the first time, it was a little bit more natural in the writing, maybe because I was younger. But I feel like as I'm watching these episodes now, it becomes more apparent when it's like, here are characters having a conversation about this thing. And then now it's like capital T theme theme time and i feel like i imagine the other seasons will be a little bit more graceful about that like it's not it's not really a criticism per se it's kind of more just like i think the show's kind of growing through going through some growing pains as far as like kind of like establishing its style which is a very first season thing to have but i mean i think some episodes are a little bit more graceful than others as far as like as we said i think last time like the, the show tackles a lot of very similar themes and kind of says new things or similar things in different ways uh, with each successive episode. But, um, you know, I, I think some episodes, this one, I, I think in particular can be somewhat graceful with some of its stuff and a little like not clunky, but like kind of like uh, on the nose about some stuff in a way that I imagine the show will later on be a little bit more uh, graceful and elegant about. I think I think what I like about the first part of season one the most is how it is so unique from the rest of the show. The rest of the show does get quieter. It gets a little bit more contemplative, whereas like the first part of the show is so weird uh, because it stands out as much. And I always love revisiting it for that reason, even though, yeah, I mean, you can look at it a little bit more critically for sure. Although I'm, I'm going to say that I think that Babylon is a terrific episode of Mad Men. I think that it it definitely is showing us a lot of how the show, like a lot of what the show is going to become for the rest of its run. Um, the way that it's going to handle themes, the way it does like crisscross montages, the way that it is just a little bit more like it does seem on the nose at times. And like, certainly that's a valid you know observation for sure. But I think that like what separates Mad Men is it always has like very on the nose things, but then it has deeper things underneath those obvious things um if that makes sense so I'm, I'm good to get into it because i think that uh there's a lot there's a lot in this episode and it only happens over the course of like two days but okay so babylon it opens on mother's day how fun uh it's may and uh don draper you know he's putting together some breakfast we have a nice little scene here we, you know mm-hmm. we show you do get the sense that like he's a little he's a goofy dad you know he's just kind of he's sure. doing this for his wife and you know, he's kind of going through the motions of, you know, being a dad, being a, a husband and everything. He puts together the breakfast tray. He grabs the paper. He heads upstairs. And then his foot it lands on like a wheelie, wheelo toy. I forgot what they're, they're called. It's a very 1960s thing. Yeah. Um, and he just crashes. He just falls mm-hmm. right to the ground. Some yeah. Slapstick yeah, comedy. Yeah. I, I, is it really slapstick comedy though? Like it's not really played for laughs when he falls. Like, no, it's not. But I'm just kind of. I mean, the part where he steps on the toy, and then up until like he hits the ground, and it's like intense, and then it goes into a flashback. You're like, oh, okay, this is like I'm not supposed to be laughing, but right. But yeah, I mean, because I 
you see like the close up of uh, the toy on the step and you see him stepping on. It. It's like you, in your mind, you're always like thinking like, oh, like here comes a goofy reaction. Like he's going to like throw the tray on his face and then fall over <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But like <laughs> but he like hits the wall and like the glass smashes and then he like falls like on his back. So it's not really like funny. It's like, you know, kind of not really like serious per se, but, you know, it's like, oh, geez, like, you know, it's, uh, that could hurt. Like, you know. A man right. fell. A man fell. And <laughs> he, he flashes back to his childhood. And in context, you know, he, this is very uh, recent from when he had this run in with his brother, Adam. And so there's, you know, clearly some connective tissue between the episodes because he's flashing back to when his brother, Adam, was born. Um, and it is confirmed here. I think it was basically confirmed in the last episode that um, they have different mothers, but they have the same father. Um, and so his uncle, Mac, uh, basically his stepmom or whatever how i don't I, I don't know how the show exactly wants you to call her um his father's wife um true had her she's well, taken a lover known as uncle matt i mean doesn't he even say something like he, he points it out it's like we have the same daddy like he's your brother yes exactly, uh, exactly or something like that but yeah like they they're like half brothers i guess technically yes. because they have different mothers and but he doesn't seem to understand yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah as a kid he doesn't understand how that works it is kind of complicated, so it's understandable mm-hmm. for sure. But yeah, he's uh, reminiscing about that. And we see one of the great tragedies of Don Draper's early life, <laughs> which right. is that bowl cut haircut of his. <laughs> it's it's tragic. Um, and I remember you were you were messaging me about it. And uh, I, I had to remind you, like, well, Ashen, it, it's the Great Depression for a reason. Yeah, exactly. It was a good line. That was a good scene. Yeah, people people weren't getting fresh cuts. <laughs> in the 1930s you know um yeah so i we can probably expect more flashbacks i don't know i don't want to give anything away but uh hey maybe maybe we'll come back to the to the flashbacks uh when don was a kid who knows but okay so we we cut back to um sally kind of like wakes him up and bobby's at the top of the stairs doing his thing just being quiet and not really existing um and then you know his wife betty runs down uh, tries to help him. Happy Mother's Day. It's very cute. Um, they return from after a long day celebrating Mother's Day, and Don and Betty are chatting about uh, the best of everything. Uh, so he's been reading this that book by Rona Jaff. I think it was her first novel, um, and it became a movie. And so Betty starts talking about the movie. And I was curious when I was watching this, Will, do you have, had you ever seen The Best of Everything? Uh, no, I have not. It? No, I haven't read it or seen it, I don't think. I haven't either. I remember always being like when when I when they mentioned it on the show, I was like, oh, I should probably read that. I've I've been told that it's not very good, but you know, I, I am curious about it because it is like a, it is supposed to kind of directly reference Peggy's life because it's about uh, young women working in um, an office in New York City, and it's it's kind of about like the different lives of women in the workplace, and that's kind of what this episode is about, right? Because you have Peggy, you have Betty, you have Joan, you have Midge, you have Rachel. Um, these are a lot of the main viewpoints of this episode, and they all have different relationships to work and careers and everything. And my understanding is that's kind of what Best of Everything is getting at. I don't know that 100%, but I think it's a very obvious, like, they're doing something there, the writers. Um, yeah, just wanted to put that in there. Uh, maybe maybe it's something we'll have to discuss, Will, someday on uh, Cinemaholics. We'll have to re-watch. We'll have to watch. Sure. Best of everything. <laughs> yeah, and it's not the, the first uh, film of some notes that will be discussed 
in this episode. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to that. I'm, I'm excited to, to get your thoughts on that. But um, so they have a conversation that's very interesting. We could we could spend like, honestly, the whole episode talking about this. But like Betty kind of has like a, a five minute, you know, not a monologue, obviously, but like something close to it. A uh, very Hemingway type scene here where it kind of starts with she's remarking on Joan Crawford's age, Joan Crawford being in the best of everything and how it unnerves her, you know, her eyebrows. And, you know, she starts talking about her mother, you know, aged much better than Crawford. And then we start to understand that Betty is really upset about her mom. Her mom has passed away uh, very recently and it's Mother's Day. And like Dawn is not receptive to that at all. Like she is not allowing Betty to grieve or process basically. He tells her no melancholy, right? And she starts to talk about how like she would just want to disappear and she would just want to, you know, she never wants to get old. And it's, it's a very haunting scene. And my understanding is that this is one of the scenes that Matthew Weiner wrote for uh, January Jones to assure her that Betty would be getting a lot of really good material in the show, that she wouldn't just be like kind of a one dimensional character. Uh, so I think that that, you know, makes sense because she really delivers it acting wise in this sequence. Yeah, I was actually going to say that because I feel like I kind of made uh, a somewhat crass comment about her acting uh, in the first episode we did. Which um, I found quite upsetting. Which I think because, I don't know, like I said, this is, I think this is where my memory gets a little faulty because I do remember like her performances earlier in her career around this time in film were not very good. Like, an unknown, she's not very good. X-Men, first class, she's not very good. It took her a Which little bit. Which was after this show, to be clear. Uh, like around the t- same time they were going first, on. But first class was 2011. This is 2007. Right. But I mean, like the show is still happening at that point. Like yes. it wasn't post Mad Men, but it was after the season. I, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like in those movies, like it, it she didn't really have a sure foot in, in the business. I think there was this perception that like she wasn't a very good actress uh, then, like, I remember even at the time when the show was going on that people kind of dismissed her performance. And this is just like, oh, everyone else is like really great. And she's kind of holding her own. So I think a part of that was kind of internalized for me throughout, uh, you know, the years when I wasn't actually watching the show. Um, but, you know, watching the season, I think that that is kind of sticking with me uh, is that I think she is much better than her percep like the perception was at the time. Like, I think she is giving yeah. a really thoughtful nuanced performance. Certainly. Uh, I think it's the third episode we talked about before. Um, you know, like she's like, you know, it's a really complex and nuanced performance that she gives in that episode. I think she's really solid. And some others, I know there's one coming up. That's like one of my favorites oh, yeah. of the season. Oh, yeah. Um, that I think she's fantastic. in, and I, I, I even thought about that. And for some reason, like, so my brain was like, no, she's not very good in the show for some reason. That's just, I don't know. I think that's some internalized uh, misogyny on my part. And, and that's something I, you know, don't like to mention, but, you know, it happens sometimes. But I'm glad I'm on the other end now and recognizing that she's given a good performance in the show. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely understand where you're coming from there. And, uh, and just in terms of like, I've, I've had those moments, too, where I've been like, you know, I had this like preconceived notion that wasn't really based on anything. And it, yeah, it was just misogyny. It was just a, a false expectation. And, you know, that's one of the great things about rewatching shows is because you can start to like figure those things out and be like, oh, my gosh, like, what was I thinking? You know, so the ending of this whole thing too is like they're you know they're starting you know don you know this is one of the classic like he just wants to sleep with his wife and he's just trying to get the whole thing going and she's just kind of like wanting to talk to him and you see so clearly like this whole episode is about power struggles right 
Um, it's about, you know, how men and women use power to like not one up each other, but to have like a stake in a relationship that favors them the most. Uh, we mainly see this with um, Don, Betty, then we later see it with Joan and Roger a lot. But in this particular instance, like Betty starts to like really just lay out to him how much she wants intimacy from him. It's as if she sort of sees this moment where she knows what he wants. He wants something sexual from her and she's trying to use this opportunity to like get it across to him that like she is feeling, she's feeling lonely. She is feeling like he neglects her that um, that there is no sort of like intimacy that they could be having. And he kind of just brushes it off. And it's, I think it's important that, um, and I think it's like a, a really nice touch too, that when it comes time for them to stop talking, she wants the light to turn off because it's like the light of like truth and of how she really feels is going away because now they're going to be just having a sexual encounter that won't really, you know, address what she's feeling. Right. Um, so I, I really love how this scene ends for that reason, because it's just very well done. It's one of those subconscious things that really is going to resonate for people who are watching it for the first time, I think. Well, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Well, the next day, uh, it's Monday. Uh, we have a case of the Mondays and we're, we're going to Sterling Cooper and we have this meeting with the Israeli tourism board or bureau, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so we have a group of people who have come to Sterling Cooper as possible clients, um, asking for help to make Israel a tourist destination. So this is kind of like where the overt kind of symbolism of, of the episode is coming into play. Babylon, obviously referencing, um, an ancient city that once had the Israeli people, the Jewish people, ancient Israeli people, I guess before Israel was really a thing, um, in captivity, uh, and they were in exile. And so we're starting to see, okay, so we're going to be having an episode that's, ta that's tackling on top of gender and on top of sexism, we're now going to be getting into racism, um, anti-Semitism anti and all of that. And so they're coming to Don and Roger about this and kind of explaining what they want, you know, making like, I think uh, Haifa, which is like the third largest city in Israel, like a place that's like, you know, Beirut or something, or making it like a, a, a destination for people. And uh, I, I think it was interesting. Like they're looking at the, the previous work that Sterling Cooper did for Rio de Janeiro. And, you know, there's even like the joke about like the Jesus statue and everything. Um, they... There's a lot to get into here. That they do mention the book Exodus. They they give the book over to Don, and this is the book by Leon Uris. Uh, this is the one that not Exodus, like literal like book of Exodus, but right. the story of um, a more modern story. Right? Mm -hmm. I, are you familiar with this one? Uh, I'm more familiar, I think, with the movie adaptation. Uh, with Paul Newman. The, yeah, with Paul Newman, which came out, I believe, the same year that this show takes place, 1960. I so they, believe they, that. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to double check that, but I believe, yeah, it is 1960. So I guess it's like only a matter of months before uh, it comes out. But the way they describe it, it's like they, they act like it's like in the works, like to come, you know, years yeah. later. But well, the book was uh, yeah. published in the 50s. I know that. And so it, and it right. hadn't been out that long. Right. But it, I mean, I am, you know, relatively familiar with the book, to be sure. Yeah, it, it mainly covers the Suez crisis. Um, and so it, it, it's a very complicated thing, but it's kind of like the predecessor, or like the precursor to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, you know, war that's been going on since and before. And I, I, I kind of have some complicated feelings on this. I feel like we'll have to keep going because I think that it comes up about a little bit later and I don't want to, you know, get ahead of myself here, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty 
rudimentary scene. It's just kind of setting things up. Now that we is, go, yeah. yeah, we go next here to Roger. Uh, Roger leaves the meeting and he finds his daughter Margaret. I think she's sixteen at this point. Uh, so we meet her for the first time. She was she's with Mona. We remember Mona. And uh, I actually have to double check the uh, the actress's name who plays Margaret Sterling. That is Elizabeth Rice. Okay. I, I had forgotten, so I apologize. Um, she, she's in um, plenty more Mad Men, but I don't, I don't remember what else she's been in as an actor, so I'd have to look that up. But we meet her, uh, one of the, and she's she's a little bit like snarky, kind of like Roger. Like he kind of like jokes sassy. with her about it. She's sassy, yeah. yeah. He he makes fun of her ponytail. She makes fun of his hair being old. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's Roger's daughter. <laughs> she sees Don for the. Uh, I don't know the first time, but she sees Don and is basically just like, ooh la la. Um, definitely yeah, yeah. seems to be attracted to Don. She's given him the eyes, you know. Yeah, as most women send to to do in a show. Um, oh, and outside of the show, even, you know. I mean, yeah, there you, know. you go. I don't know if you know this, John, but John Hamm's a pretty good looking man. Well cut, th- well chiseled <laughs> man. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, Mona looks at Joan and Don and is kind of like, oh, what a handsome couple. Yeah, you could, you could read this as sort of like an unintentional, um, reference to the fact that Christina Hendricks was originally, um, trying to play, um, I think either, I think Midge. Yeah. I think she was originally going to play Midge in the show. And so it was going to be like, you know, one of Don's mistresses and everything, but <laughs> they eventually cast her as Joan Holloway. I think that's right. It's either Midge or... Um, Rachel, but I'm pretty sure it's Midge. So hopefully I have that right. I mean, I could see her as Midge, but I think it worked yeah. out the way it played out. Oh, absolutely. Because the character of Joan Holloway, uh, Matthew Weiner has said this a bunch that she was never supposed to be like a huge fixture of the show. Like she becomes, um, right. and Christina Hendricks really forged the character, um, in that respect, uh, especially like this is one of the first like big stories we get for Joan in the show. Makes sense. We cut next to a hotel room and it's revealed that Joan and Roger have been sleeping together for at least a year. Now there is a little bit of like a continuity error here. Um, hmm. it's, it's hard to square it and it's not something we'll be able to talk about until later in the show. Um, okay. there, there's stuff that happens later in the show that implies it not implies it kind of says that like they've been together for a lot longer than just a year. Um, but I don't, I don't want to get into that now. Um, but they've been together for some time um, is the point. I mean, no, no, no. I just, uh, I was chuckling because I was remembering, uh, I think I sent this to you. Like there's this whole thing with stranger things. I, I don't watch stranger things, but there's something with like, like one character's birthday has been, uh, misremembered by the creators. That's when right. Yeah. The season. <laughs> they're, they're like trying, trying to like, it. they're kind of digitally yeah. like recreate it. And like, people were pointing out that like on Mad Men, like, at least like four, five different actors play Bobby and they never like made a point to address. They were just kind of just like, well, mm-hmm. hopefully no one yeah. notices. So I feel like this show is pretty good about <laughs> just kind of just like, yeah, you know what? Eh. If they notice, they notice. Don't like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right approach to take. I think just, you know, every TV like show has very, to have its weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's a very like Sterling Cooper kind of approach. You know, just kind of like, yeah. yeah. Rather than way like, is, yeah. you know, all the movies and shows where, especially in like star Wars where it's like, okay, we have to have an entire movie about this line of dialogue, you know what right. I mean? this entire Disney plus series about why yeah. this character was doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, we hate that. So anyway, um, Roger and Joan, we kind of see their dynamic and how they work together. And I really love this scene because the more I watch it, the more I get from it for sure. 
I especially like find it so fascinating the way that Joan exercises the, the little power she has, maybe not little power, like the power she has over Roger, um, symbolically, physically, emotionally in this scene. He's kind of trying throughout this episode to put her into a cage to make her his and his alone. She understands though what that would mean for her. She's an extremely intelligent character. She understands the effect that her sexuality has on men and she uses it to essentially get something from Roger and it's unclear exactly like, okay, she seems to really care about him. They seem to have extremely good chemistry because mm-hmm. they're both very emotionally intelligent. They're both very funny. They both yeah. like to kind of like, you know, bicker with each other, not bicker, but just kind of like, they're both very like snarky together and there's just a lot of uh, spark there. Right. Yeah. And she, she understands Sizzle. that it, yeah, she understands that it wouldn't last. She understands, as this episode we'll talk about, that something with him is something that cannot be. And so she is making the most of it that she can. And there's, there's something so level-headed about her approach, whereas Roger is just kind of oblivious to it. Like, he understands that she is withholding from him on purpose, but he doesn't seem, like, willing to accept it. And then this this is where, like, oof, the writing for Mad Men just really sure. starts to come in and focus for the side characters. Not just, not side characters later, but um, they're side characters now, right? But, like, yeah. usually this heavy writing is reserved for just, like, Dawn. Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating, too, is that, like, I think she even says at one point, like, she considers all the other men at the ad agency boys, but she sees Roger as a man, presumably, like, uh, because of his age and because of his uh, ranking his power. in the office. But yeah. because they, uh, you know, there is this kind of sense of, like, perceived, uh, you know, like, like in the office, they don't really have to do much to prove themselves just by, you know, social hierarchy and just the, the fact that they're men at this time, this place in America, like there, there is that uh, availability to be kind of aloof about like stuff like this. And also just, I feel like men generally speaking, very generally speaking are less emotionally attuned to things like this. I think that's fair to say. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of play here that I think is fun, but also uh, just adds a lot to Jones character who is, I mean, even when I was watching the show first time, I was like, this is one of the best characters on this show. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, because she just, there's something about her pragmatism that, Mm -hmm. you know, is honest and understandable, but doesn't cheapen her as a person of agency, right? Like, she's a character who, like, she even says it in the scene. She's like, she understands that she's going to have to secure a more permanent situation, as she calls it. And she sees that Roger will want somebody younger eventually, calls her, calls that a new model. So she's somebody who understands the objectification of women. And she works within the system to still get what she wants as much as she wants as she can. Um, there's a lot more here, but yeah, got to keep going, I guess. But sure. um, because she does bring up Carol and um, her roommate situation and stuff like that. And uh, Joan. Okay, so we go back to Sterling Cooper. We're back at the office. And the boys, uh, trademark, uh, we have Don, Paul, Sal, and Pete. They're hanging out trying to figure out how to make Israel exciting um, for tourists. They're looking um at the or don is looking at these images of people like starving refugees and uh, really horrific stuff that's happening out of the suez crisis uh, in reference to the book exodus and i think what it's kind of interesting that like pete kind of like repeats his death wish thing from uh lucky strike where he's just like why don't we lean into you know the danger of it all <laughs> you know people want adventure and then sal is kind of being like what, what if we made it like the promised land we do the religion thing and don is the one who kind of sees that like 
neither approach works. Like take the religion out of it. It's a very like logical, like that's, that's like, the, I think the beauty of Don's mind is he's able to understand immediately. Like the people who would want to go to Israel for religious reasons, like we're not after them because like they're, you know, you they're going to go regardless. Yeah. You don't really need to advertise exactly to them because they're already inclined to want to go. So exactly. you have to, yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of, he's kind of looking at it. Uh, Pete, Pete also is sort of like, it's communist and you know, they're, they're clearly like put off by the Israeli Jewish people and the fact that women have guns. I feel one criticism I do have this episode is that I, I do think some of this commentary, not that it's pointed. I just think that it's like, I don't know, it's soft. Like it's, it, I don't know. They just kind of like glide through the implications of what they're talking about. And I don't find it very effective as part of the episode. Like it, it basically is, but, uh, it's definitely not my favorite. It's far from one of my favorite scenes in this episode. It feels a little less sure footed in a show that is very controlled and well-mannered from like the first step on the first exactly. episode. Yeah. It's main function really is just like exposition and then setting up, um, Don seeing, you know, Sal's just like the women are good looking. And then he sees a picture that reminds him of Rachel Minkin <laughs> and he shoots them out of the, the office and calls her up. And so Maggie Stiff returns, um, which is great news because I love Maggie Stiff. I, I think that she is just a, such a tremendous actor in this show. Um, mm -hmm. absolutely tremendous. And this is, this is definitely where we're starting to get a little bit more of like, I know the conflict with her, like we've gotten it already, but like the previous instances of Rachel, I think have been a little bit like straightforward. Now we're starting to see her kind of like in conflict with herself, which I love. So we're going to get to that. Yeah. I mean, every other scene we've seen with her, she's either like in the office or with Dawn. So now it's yeah. a little bit more of her own life. I mean, granted, a lot of her scenes relate to Dawn. But, you know, they, 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 they focus on, like you said, that internal battle that she has within herself. Yeah, we can't we can't say that, uh, you know, Rachel scenes pass the Bechdel test. Is that what you're saying? Not quite. Yeah, not exactly. <laughs> not she that doesn't they need pass, to, but it, <laughs> she doesn't pass the Bechdel fun. test with her mom. But, uh, you know, it, 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 they're, you know, whatever. All right. Um, so we, we cut to Don's house and he's reading Exodus. And, you know, Betty is kind of like being like, geez, Don, you got a, like a library card, <laughs> you know, he's just yeah. like reading left and right. He's, he uh, made a, you know, good headway. He's like three yeah. fourths of the way through that. And I think he got that that day. Right. You know, like, I mean, what else is he going to do? Like pay attention to his kids? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, he probably read it on the train. He, yeah, he That's probably got think, home, yeah. said like two words to his wife, uh, looked at his kids for six seconds and then started reading for hours. Um, that's my guess. Um, so, so Betty is kind of like trying to start up a conversation with him, but he's very distracted. You can kind of tell he's distracted mainly by how much, you know, he wants to sleep with Rachel again, or sorry for the first time, not Rachel. Um, yes, sleep with Rachel, um, because you know, he is feeling the lust, right? Sure, and you did. Betty gets his attention though. And she's just like, you know, the first boy I kissed was Jewish. <laughs> you find that pretty funny? yeah i know no, i mean i think there's some funny stuff in this episode like i said to you it's funny uh before we record i think it has my uh my biggest belly laugh of the, of the show so far oh, but that's coming up later yeah yes i'm ready for you to reveal that when that comes um no she she gives us a little story about how she kissed a boy named david rosenberg and um she does this thing you'll notice um i think i think i emily st james pointed out too that she does this a lot in the first season. Whenever she tells a story about people who like more or less wronged her, she always ends it with some kind of like personal revenge. Cause like she ends this story of like, Oh, and then everyone teased me about David Rosenberg. 
oh, by next summer, all the girls are blonde. Like she kind of always has to do that. And I, I had never noticed that before. Um, but that, that's an interesting observation. That's Betty for you. She wants to sleep with Don. Yeah. She wants it because she just uh, said the day before, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to kind of touch back on what you were saying before, though. It's like, oh, yeah, is yeah. that more of a kind of tying into her insecurity or is that more tying into like the image she wants to perceive for herself it's, it's for Don? It is image. And okay. it's like, we got to remember that like she has like a childish sort of like fantasy of herself. And like, that's what Don sees from her. And that's why Don, he had, he, the reason he keeps her in his life and keeps her as his wife is because she like is the image of everything he thinks he wants. But under the surface, she is very childlike. She's very like insecure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, stuff like that that rubs him the wrong way. I mean, the show goes to great lengths to kind of show the like play, like the playhouse mentality of, um, yes. Betty to a point where she's mostly at the house for this first season, uh, you know, and playing wife for yeah, you know, and majority a long, yeah. a long-term criticism people have had about the show, um, particularly in the first season is the way that it treats Betty in this respect. And kind of like some people have read it as like, Oh, the show is saying that it's justified that Don cheats on her because, you know, Betty isn't good enough or Betty isn't smart enough. I don't think that's accurate at all. I don't think the show is, even approaching something like that. I think the show is approaching Betty purely as a victim who sort of like perpetuates her victimhood. And it's such a complex nuanced thing. I think that people should, I think at least try to meet the show where it's at on that commentary because it's never that simple, right? It would be a very boring show if it was. But yeah, so after that, um, she tries to sleep with Dawn and he kind of like shuts her down. Um, it's like, oh, the heat, I'm reading about the desert, and she's like, we should get an air conditioner. She's just kind of like, what the heck, man? Like, she just, it's like one of those things where it's like she thought that, like, maybe something's going to change after the conversation they had the previous night, but it doesn't. And you can just kind of see, like, her trying to hold back that realization and not to, like, lose it. It's it's kind of mm. heartbreaking in a way, like, quietly heartbreaking. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> you're like sure as if I care about Betty. No, no, no I mean like I, I I agree. Like it's it's quite sad. Uh, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but yeah, I got you. I got you. All right. So the next scene is the next morning, and Ken sure. Cosgrove. I guess it was three days. I said two days earlier. It was three days. I guess that this how dare this, you? Uh, episode. My bad. My bad. So we uh we have Freddie Rumson. Our intro. I think this is the first time we meet Freddie. Um who i i whew, the character of freddie rumson is freddie so uh glad he's here. joel murray joel murray that's okay. the guy um i think the other show i remember him from was uh shameless i think that was okay. him in shameless but uh i get i get some of the other non bill uh murray uh like his brothers like i get him kind of mixed yeah. up i got you um i always Great. remember joel because of mad men um but yeah, so he he's kind of he's pouring vodka into I think it's vodka into his orange juice, so implying mm-hmm. that he is quite he's a bit of a an alcoholic. And you know, there's even a remark, you know, in this world, in this like era of Mad Men, even Sal is just like, you want us to like wait for you to finish your breakfast, just kind of like ribbing him because <laughs> even that is a bit anomalous uh, for this office for people to be like drinking like that that early. Sure. Um, and he kind of implies that like he has a hard time getting through the day otherwise. Um, so we're, we're getting a lot of like background for Freddie through really subtle hints, right? Um, I really like how he is like how he's handled and written in this episode because 
he is such a familiar copywriter to me. I know this copywriter. Well, we, we talk about how I relate this to advertising and this is such a good portrayal and such a good, I don't want to say caricature because that sounds bad, but like it's such a good write-up of that like older kind of like over the hill copywriter who still has a lot of talent. You can kind of see like he understands how to write. Like he's not a dumb dude, but he's also really dumb, um, but also really like he's just complicated, right? Um, sure. So I, I don't know. I really, the character of Freddie Rumson always fascinates me. Yeah. So I was trying to remember. So Joel Murray is, I recognize him from his work with uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. He was a star of God Bless America. And I think he was also in Shakes the Clown. And then I was getting confused with Brian Dole Murray, who oh. is uh, the co-writer of Caddyshack, and he's also in Wayne's World and all that. So you fool, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not. Joel. I was trying to remember as I was watching. It's like, is this the guy from from Wayne's World? Is that the other Murray brother? But yeah, anyway, no. yeah, yeah. Um, so they are looking at um a client called Belle Jolie. It's a fictional. Um, company it's not a real place literally i think the word like bell and jolie is like a it doesn't like mean anything i think the book Mad Men carousel pointed that out actually so i'll oh, see okay. well i'll give the book credit um, <laughs> but uh bell jolie lipstick uh he's having trouble um just kind of like figuring out like what are we you know he's 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 true super ridiculous about it super you know sexist about it where he's just like i was gonna say i, I mean speak moron yeah, I was going to say, if, if this was a real lipstick company, I feel like they'd be pretty offended by how they right. treat this product. Uh, you know, because there's like some dignity to some of the products that they advertise are real, like advertisement names. But like mm-hmm. this one, they were like really disparaging. I was like, I, I was thinking about that. I was like, if this is a real lipstick company, I'd, I'd feel a little offended here. <laughs> well, yeah, they do that sometimes with uh, companies that don't exist anymore. So sometimes that's the case. But so he he's having he's ready to give up on the account because their sales are abysmal. He doesn't understand why because they they have so many different lipsticks. So it, in an attempt to turn the campaign around, he suggests that they bring the female um, office workers in to help them out. He says, "Let's throw it to the chickens because he is a horrible person." Um, so we next go to a research room and, uh, I think, so Greta Gutman is this character and I think she's like in charge of the account or she's maybe affiliated with Belgian lipsticks. I wasn't sure. I think she's the research person. Maybe, um, this is something I, I'm not a hundred percent sure about, but they basically bring the secretaries in, including Peggy, um, to test out the lipsticks. And then on the other side, it's a two way mirror. And Sally even says, it's like, why do they call it a one-way mirror when it's two-way? But anyway, um, they the men are on the other side, and they're watching the women, like, without them knowing that the guys are watching them, with the exception of Joan. Joan knows, but the rest of them don't. Um, and they're basically spying on them, trying to observe and see, like, okay, like, you know, they're supposed to be brainstorming and figuring out, like, what to do about the account, but instead they're making jokes, they're drinking, and... It's one of the show's like less than subtle, you know, sort of comments on the power dynamics between men and women of this era and how that proceeds today in a lot of ways. Um, it's quite a scene. So I was going to say, though it's uh, less than subtle in how it portrays this, I feel it's such a cinematic look at like, you know, it, it's such a visually striking way to display what's so It's like they're watching a movie. This. Yeah, but also just like the fact that like the whole idea of the show being like the way they view women, like they, they mm-hmm. and also just an advertisement, like the way they just look at people as not being really people. Like they just like look at them as playthings, like stuff yeah. that they're playing around. They don't even take, like point, they even say it's like, oh, if there was a man in there, they'd take it seriously. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, though the writing of it's not particularly subtle. I think the way that they play it out visually is just so strike and also just like the way it, it's acted. I think it also just really, you know, it, it's a highlight of the season for that reason. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's why I think that like there will be some people who look at stuff like this in Mad Men and are like the show is basically like an outlet for, you know, men to watch this and be like, Haha, that was awesome, you know, and I don't know if that's the case. I feel like this show is definitely too good and too well written. Um, in other words, it's too boring. Um, I think for guys who would watch it and look at it that way for them to like put up with the show long enough to get to a scene like this, in my opinion, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, not to generalize, but I feel like the type of people who would watch that scene and be like, hey, hey men are yeah. awesome are also the type of guys who are like, why are we not supposed to like Don Draper? He's just a cool dude that's just doing the right thing or whatever. You know, right. like, I mean, like, yeah, where's, where, you know, where, where's the gunfights? You know, right. where the like, where's the action? Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like, I don't know. I mean, especially as I watch this as an, an adult, I feel like if you're not really getting the themes of this show, which are, you know pretty laid bare and subtle and on the nose ways throughout the whole show. I mean, if you, if you're able to walk away from it and like not take away that, I feel like that's a, yeah. that's a them problem. That's not, not a show problem. I think it, it's not just that we're adults watching this now compared to like the show was coming out when we were, I was like in high school still, I think you were in middle school. Uh, uh, yeah. It just, yeah it's premiered when, uh, was it 2007? Yeah. Yeah, I was either like in middle school or just about the inner high school. But like, I think one of the main things that's like made us more, I don't know, uh, savvy to shows and what they're up to is the fact that like, this is one of the precursors along with Sopranos and many others like The Wire that like set up prestige television. We're used to shows like being this good. So like we we obviously have a much harsher sort of like uh field of reference when it comes to evaluating this show and many others around this time because we're so used to it being the norm but back when this show was coming out that wasn't the norm at all like it was still like a fairly fresh thing for tv to be much more deep and layered than it ha really had been uh in years past for with, with very few exceptions so i think that's always good to keep in mind there's an interesting moment here where you know joan is kind of like strutting a bit she knows that the guys are on the other side. Roger clearly is not happy about that. We also see her, you know, kind of like backseat driving um, some of the editorial comments um, as Gutman is trying to like get questions out of the girls and like Joan is kind of like stepping in and butting in. I have my read uh, of this. Butting way, butting in in uh, more ways than one, I'd say. Heck, there you go. Uh, I'd like to see uh, that comment, Will Ashen. Sure. Uh, but also, I was just going to say, but I know you want to make your comment. I was just going to say, that's another thing I like about like how like she's like the only one that knows. And she's like, you know, in this office, she's like, caught between like she's in, you know, the uh, like the hall of mirrors, basically like this, like kind of closed in environment. But she's also like the one who's aware of what's going on, like how the sausage is being made. But like, not yeah. be invited into that room. You know, just like good visual metaphor storytelling, I think. So absolutely. Yeah. But and, anyway, what we're going to say. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I was going to ask if you had a read on her behavior here, like what she's saying to like her editorial comments and why she's just kind of like not, you know, like why she's kind of sticking up for her in a way, Allison in that particular scene. Um, well, I mean, you know, I think. Like we, like I was saying before, like she, you know, is kind of caught between two worlds here in the office. Like she, you know, she kind of plays with the boys. She's very hyper aware of her sexuality. 
She knows what she wants. She knows how to get what she wants. She knows how to get ahead in the office space. But she still has that empathy, that vulnerability. I think that's certainly displayed in some scenes with Peggy. Even when she can be kind of snide and like, you know, even mean to Peggy. Like, I think there is like a, a sympathy. That, well, see, this that is what her. I wanted to get at. I think it's like not necessary. I don't think it's that good natured. I think in a way it is, but like, I think Joan, uh, in this case and many others, wants control over the women of the office. She wants well, to certainly be in charge of, of them, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that she sticks her neck out for them and she sees them sort of as her protégés because she has no other power like that in this office. So like mm-hmm. when somebody is trying to like, you know, get in the way of that, she, you know, has an issue, right? And we're going to see like later something that happens between her and Peggy that, you know, you could read a certain way of like, oh, she's jealous of Peggy. But I don't think, well, we'll get to that. But I think that that's not really the place that she's coming from. I think she sees her role in the office as something that is very fragile. And so she'll, you know. yeah. Yeah. I think she's more aware of how fragile it can be. Like, I think the other guys in the office are, as I said, kind of pigheaded about their place in the office. Like, they just kind of feel like it's, you know, almost predetermined that they'd be there. Certainly someone like Pete like feels entitled to be at Dawn's level just from the get go. Whereas, uh, you know, someone like Joan or Peggy is more aware of like how fraught and how fragile a position like that can be, especially in Peggy's case, when, as we'll discuss, she has the opportunity to have a little bit more creative say at Sterling Cooper. Yes. Um, as I was kind of mentioning before, like this could be read as, and again, I haven't read the best of everything or watched the movie, but I wonder if this is a direct call to like that book and like how the men are essentially like observing and watching like women in the workplace in this way and kind of treating it as a sideshow. Um, I could be off about that, but I'd, I'd have to read the book. And so Paul kind of, um, kind of casually is like, what's wrong with mouse ears over there? Even though like, you know, like he and Peggy were like becoming friends until he hit on her. He very well doesn't need to call her mouse ears, but clearly he, you know, is trying to show some bravado because she shut him down. And they kind of notice that like she hasn't tried on any lipstick and she's kind of doing what they're doing. She's observing instead of participating. Um, Madman Carousel talks about this uh, ish, this thing too. And I fully agree with the the takeaway that we're, this is the episode where we realize or like the show really starts to get into the real story arc of Peggy as an artist because that's who she is, right? And I love it because that's one of the things I love about this episode is that we're finally getting into like really what Peggy is about. And that to her me deal. is one of the most like fundamental appeals of the show is mm-hmm. her. Um, and until now, we like I said, it's felt like a prologue. It's felt like setting up this point. Yeah, I mean, well... She's like the show doesn't really have a straight audience surrogate, but she's the closest that the show has to one in that she is the character that's being introduced to the office, even though Pete's fairly green in the office in the pilot. Like he's been there a little bit and he's also like so just kind of aloof to a lot of things that like Peggy is the more clear eyed perspective, uh, you know, the one that can lend itself well to the audience surrogate. But yeah, it's not really like a clear Uh, example of that but she is the one that like i think really pushes this show to something exceptional like i think her perspective is so key to what makes bad men mad men before we finish out the scene the episode cuts over to don's lunch with rachel at the pierre a real hotel in new york city and uh, i think the pierre is going to get referenced way more in the show Hmm? 
here. I said, looks nice. Yeah, yeah, we should go. Uh, I'm buying. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it's just business, Well, <laughs> Cheers. Um, so Don is talking to Rachel, and at first, you know, he's kind of trying to, like, you know, be a little bit charming and have a little bit of small talk, but she's just like, yeah, you set this up on business. He's like, all right, all right. So um, he, he tells her like what's going on with the Israeli tourism thing. And then he's kind of struggling with it. And she kind of remarks, it's like, am I the only Jew, you know, in New York city? And he's just like, you're my favorite. <laughs> so, you know, clearly, uh, <laughs> um, they, you know, they, they, this is a uh, probably my favorite part of the episode. Um, I, I think this is one of my favorite Maggie Sift moments in the show. Um, when she talks about the difference between um, herself, how she views her identity and the Israeli Jews, the general, like the Jewish people. I love the line she has here about like, I'm not an expert on this. And I don't feel comfortable with you treating me like I am one. That is such a beautiful moment of like, this is just a person who's brutally honest. And it, that is like such a great line to sort of like address like a microaggression that I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, it's like you're treated a certain way and you're like, hmm, that, that's not me, but okay. You know, or like, you, you know what I mean? I feel like you've, you've gone through, you're yeah. right. You've gone through this with me when I've been like, well, sure. you're an expert on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, but I love this. And she, she kind of sets up like, you know, the episode titled Babylon, um, that the Jews have been living in exile for a long time. I love when she says, like, we've managed to make a go of it. It might have something to do with the fact that we thrive at doing business with people who hate us. Uh, there's something about this uh, this whole thing, too, because, like, Don reads it as, like, I don't hate you or whatever, which I, I honestly don't think that, like, she's even getting at that. But, like, this is one of those those moments where it just reminds me, like, Don's whole shtick, you know, the reason the show is about advertising is because he's always advertising himself. You know, he is an advertisement, a walking sort of, like, you know, billboard of like how he presents himself. He does this to Betty. He does this to Rachel. It's a big reason why, like, you know, he clearly wants to get something out of these women and he just doesn't, he doesn't even seem to understand what it is. And I think that his back and forth with Rachel in the scene is a really good hint of that. I'd agree. I mean, he's always like kind of projecting this sense of like, yeah, he is. I, I think even more so than uh, some of the other characters, I think he's almost like aware of like kind of how fragile his uh, place in the, in the workplace is because his identity is, uh, you know, a lie in and of itself. So he's always kind of fearful that something is going to be exposed and that something is going to come out that, you know, could be fundamentally dangerous to his well-being, to his fabricated life such as it is. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the last things that happens, uh, I love I love this other line too that Maggie Siff gets where she talks about utopia because uh, Don brings it up and she defines it. She's like, you know, the Greeks had, you know, two meanings. I think she says like, you know, the good place. Yeah, I think it's like utopos and then utopos, the place that cannot be. And it's really great thesis statement for uh, this season in particular, you know, talking about this is the the world that cannot be. Uh, I, I definitely read it as like New York is Babylon. We've had a lot of like, what is New York City to people in the show so far? We've had New Amsterdam. You know, we've had everything with Pete and, you know, the way that his name relates to it, Bethlehem Steel, a lot of that stuff. I think this is the moment where we start to get a clear eye of like what New York means to everybody else. And I think it's in this moment where like Don pains because I think he really wants to tell Rachel that he's in exile that he can connect with her on this, that he's not Jewish, but he, as the first scene in this episode points out, 
he has always been like, though a self-made man, though he's made a go of it, he is an exile in New York City under a different identity, always kind of like in between line of like who he is and how other people perceive him. And this is his Babylon. And so I, I find that uh, very fascinating because I think it really hits him, you know, and I think it cements for him. It's like, oh, I, I have something with this woman intellectually that I don't have with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I think he was uh, initially kind of frightened of, uh, like in that scene with them in the pilot. But now he kind of like is a lore to and even sort of sympathetic towards as the, the season goes on. Absolutely. So she leaves, um, doesn't even have lunch. That was a very, not a, not a healthy lunch. She just had coffee and he just had, um, I'm assuming whiskey, but we cut back yeah. to the brainstorming session for Belgian lipsticks. Um, the girls are leaving. Peggy is putting like tissues in a basket. She hands the basket to Freddie and is like, here's your basket of kisses. And he's just like, Oh, that's cute. What man told you to say that? <laughs> oh, madman. Oh my gosh. And she's just like, Oh, I just came up with it on my own. And he's just like, well, hey, like, you know, we, you know, he, he's kind of like, why, why didn't you, you know, pick a color? He's like, or why didn't you um, do this or that or whatever? And she's like, oh, somebody got my color. And he's like, why don't you pick another one? And she's like, you know, I'm very particular. And he's just like, well, or, as opposed to the other girls. And she's like, I don't, I don't think that anyone wants to feel like um, one of a hundred colors in a box. Or I think that's the line, right? And that really gets to him, clearly. Yeah. He's just kind of like, wow. Joan kind of cuts in. It's like, I think that's enough complaining. She reads the mm-hmm. situation as Freddie coming on to Peggy when that's not really the situation because she's she makes the regards like, oh, I bet you wish you could pour that in a glass and drink it. Like she's trying to shame him. And Freddie's just like, whatever. Like he's just he's still processing, you know, that Peggy has said this to him. Um, and that's how that ends. Yeah, he's you can see the the um the wiring his brain kind of going fraught like being like uh, it's like a slow crank of a gear came up with that basket of kisses <laughs> all different colors different the lubrication women. of the vodka yeah. just barely <laughs> pushing the yeah. <laughs> the mouse yeah. up the hill right um we cut next to uh Don um and he's still kind of trying to he's about to leave the office and he's still kind of like trying to wrap his head around the Israel campaign. And then Sal and Freddie come in and fill him in on what happened with Belgie Lee lipsticks. And Freddie is kind of like, you know, that, you know, Peggy like made an impression, right? And he he tells her what happened and he says something kind of fascinating. And, and Don is just kind of like, Peggy, really? Like, and she's like within earshot, but she doesn't seem to hear them where he's just like the earnestness, you know, like whatever. Uh, Peggy, blinded by her sucks. earnestness. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. yeah. And then uh, Freddie Freddie tells him that and he's just like, huh, that that is interesting. And mm-hmm. Freddie, it was like watching a dog play the piano. Is what he says <laughs> about a human being. Um, that's Freddie Rumson. Uh, not the last we'll get to him. But yeah, that clearly seems to get to Don. And he's just like, oh wow, okay. So we'll get to that. Back, we'll get back to that in a second. We go back to Rachel Mankin. And- oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, you had you, something. You, well, this is where that line came in that made me laugh so hard. Uh, it was actually piano? no 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 uh i think you kind of glossed over it which is kisses? no or maybe it's a later scene it was but i'm pretty sure it's this one because it's with uh it's with joel murray and sal where he's yeah. just like so I, I forget what what sal says directly but it's like something was le- wet and sloppy oh and yeah then, yeah he's just like uh it was a bucket of kisses and um <laughs> freddie says basket of kisses and then yeah. Sal is just like a bucket sounds better. And Freddie's like, if you like him wet and sloppy. <laughs> and then Sal just has like this reaction, just like, 
like that. And it made me laugh so hard. Like that was really? the biggest that made laugh you I got. Laugh? Yeah, because it just like Sal. Well, I mean, like the I show obviously just, does a lot of jokes with yeah. like uh, um, Sal's homosexuality, and it kind of verges into like, okay, this is a little much. But I feel yeah. like that, like just that reaction, like they could have done more with it, but just his like the way he's like clearly like trying to play it coy as far as just right, like right. I see what you're saying, yeah. But like in like, but also like it's kind of a give. It's like a giveaway too of like he's just kind of just like yeah. I mean. If you're asking, I, I do appreciate <laughs> it. And that, that moment too solidifies Freddie has like a confidence, um, in his writing that the other writers we met don't, uh, I think the only writer too, that we've met at this point is Paul, who's very insecure and who's very much not like Freddie in the sense that like, he's not Freddie does have like career veteran experience when it comes to writing. And so he clearly like when it comes to like the basket of kisses thing, he's very much just like, no, like he's, you know, it's, it's something interesting about the character, but I'm, they're okay yeah so then we go to rachel and rachel's on the phone with her sister barbara and she's kind of like clearly like what i was referencing before in conflict because the connection she just had with don like she's she's having trouble like just ignoring it like she kind of just sees that there is like chemistry that he's still coming on to her and i think it means something to her that like he hasn't just you know brushed the whole thing off I think she has to imagine that a guy like him, she knows that he's, you know, pretty handsome. He could just have like an affair for the heck of it. And he does. But I think to her, she's sort of like, he clearly like has like feelings for her that are like enough that he's like trying to like spend more time with her. And I think that she is flattered by it in a way, probably. And so she's kind of like, he has serious limitations and they're kind of talking about him in a way of like, what should we do? You know? And then, you know, her sister kind of encouraged her. It's like, Hey, you know, you can be with somebody for love. You know, it doesn't matter that he's not Jewish and all this stuff. So it's a nice, it's a nice little scene. And in the sense of like, we're getting a little bit more of like where Rachel stands with Don. Um, and I think that it's, uh, definitely sad for her because Don, Don's a big old mess. He's got baggage and she knows that he has some baggage, but she doesn't know the depths of his baggage. The bucket of kisses of his baggage. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, if you like right. him wet and sloppy. Sure you go. Um, and he does. Um, speaking of which, uh, oh, actually, no, before we get to him going over to Midge's house, uh, we, we go back to Sterling Cooper one more time. And uh, Joan is bringing some files over to Peggy, and she's like, well, hey, it uh, looks like you're going to be coming up with some copy for Belgian lipsticks. And Peggy's like, wait, really? Seriously? I don't understand. She's like, they want me to write something. <laughs> um, you know, Jonas was like, yeah, you're not going to get a raise. Uh-huh. No. Um, and she's like, oh, maybe you'll get some dinner money, blah, blah, blah. Peggy is just like taken aback. She certainly was not expecting this. And she's like, should I thank them in person? And Joan is just like, they told me, you know, to send the message. No need. Like, yeah, she's, they were pretty explicit about it. And, and then she says in a way that oof, Christina Hendricks coming in for the closer. It's like they say, the medium is the message. Oof. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, she's clearly pretty jealous about this. Like, no, you know, she's this... not jealous. You don't think so? No, she's not jealous because Joan does not care about a woman having like writing copy or anything like that. She doesn't want to be Peggy. She wants power over Peggy. She and and I found this. There's an interview where Christina Hendricks talks about this, and she explicitly says the character is not jealous. She says what the character is experiencing is displeasure, um, because and you can kind of read into this more. But my take on it is that, like what I was referencing earlier, she feels protective over these girls because, like, 
they're the only people that she feels like she has power over. And I think Christina Hendricks says specifically that Peggy to her is like, she thought was her protege, you know, that she was like looking out for showing her the ropes and that Peggy is kind of like branching off into another place. Like without her hurts her. Like that's more what it is. Okay. Well, I mean, you have, we can't argue with the actor. The actor said it explicitly. Yeah. I mean, but I feel like, I don't know. I, I just thought because like, the way she's sort of like kind of dismissing this is like, oh, you're, it's, you're not getting paid for it and it's more work and you have to do it on your own time. Yeah. yeah. Kind of trying to act like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like it, it read it. a little bit. Yeah. It read a little bit as jealousy to me, but I can see what you. Uh, I've read it as jealousy. I mean, I, I think yeah. it comes off that way, but I think that it, uh, that's the thing. I think that those are the overt themes of Mad Men that become deeper when you rewatch and you start to see like maybe there is more to it than just simple jealousy. And there's more about like the theme of the episode coming into play without us even really realizing it. Um, hence, one of the greatest shows ever made, I think. You're, you seem a little bit more hesitant. You're like, boy, I've only I seen mean, one season. Uh, yeah, I've seen one season and now and years and years uh, half a season again. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I have to watch more of this show, but I'm going to take your word for it, given that reception is received over the years. So now we go back. Now we go to Don getting his wet and sloppy on with Mitch. Um, clearly, he's still horny and he's kind Don's of Don's like, horny? Yeah, he wow. is. And he couldn't get wow. it from Rachel. So he Who goes to his mistress. Um, yeah. So he goes to her apartment. They, they, they start going at it. But then a guy named Roy Hazlett. What a last name, <laughs> considering. Uh, that. Now, that was on the nose. Uh, I think he probably gave himself that name, to be clear. Uh, he comes by and is like, hey, Mitch, let's go to the gaslight. You know, it'll be a kick. You know, it's like a beatnik mm-hmm. spot in the village. They're going to watch yeah. a friend of his named Ian perform. And then uh, he's like, yeah, we should go. That is if dad will let you out. And then the audience, you hear the live studio audience be like, ooh. <laughs> it was a little weird that they've invited them for that scene, but not any others in this uh, episode or season. But I thought it was pretty appropriate. Sure, yeah. sure. Um so I mean, that's what Mitch happens like, when you film it in the full house studio. Yeah, but. <laughs> and uh, Midge is like, we should go. And then Don is just like, I'll stay here. He's like trying to exert his power. And Midge is just like, I'll wear a skirt and nothing else. And again, this is that this is what the episode's about. It's about women using the power that they can to get men to do things. And in this case, that's clearly seems to sway Don. We go to a hotel where Roger um, and Joan meet up for another rendezvous. And Joan is kind of like explaining why she was super late. Um, basically, somebody was like trying to like hang out with her and give her tickets to a thing and blah, blah, blah. The opera. The opera. The bath. That was a ballet. But oh, um, no, you're right. I think it was actually the ballet. Roger surprises her by inventing Twitter. Um, and by that, I mean, <laughs> he has a birdcage with a bird. He referenced earlier in the episode of how, you know, oh, if you're lonely, Joan, you should, you know, have a, you should get a bird so you don't have to have a roommate anymore. Um, yeah, and she's I just think, kind of like, I have my own mm-hmm. life. I think this is where, like I said before, I think this is where it gets a little too on the nose for me. Like this is like, yeah. this is a theme being literalized in a way that I feel like is not super subtle or graceful in this in this episode. But it's not I, like a bad scene or anything. I agree. I mean, you could if you really wanted to shill for the show like I do, um, you could be like, oh, yeah, well, well the show show knows that will and that's why joan is groaning because she sees the birdcage and it's just like roger that's not subtle at all and that's really what it anyway 
I do think that this this dynamic makes up for it uh, at the very very end when it shows them on like the opposite ends of the sidewalk, and that to me is a much more powerful um, composition shot than what we get here. You're right. No, no, um, I agree. I mean, it's just like like that one scene in Sopranos when like Tony's with his uh, one Gamar, and they're like in like the like snake pit or whatever, and it's mm-hmm. like trying to do like an Avenue thing. And it's like I get what you're doing, but it just seems a little on the nose in this scene. And sometimes that's, I think that's okay. I mean, I do like that. Like there, there is like the whole thing where Joan is like, you need to cover up the bird cage because she doesn't want to be reminded of how that's how he sees her. And like, you know, again, it's not so very subtle, but there's more to it than just like it's not that, you know, like ah, well, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's not a bad scene. Like I'm not like knocking it as such. I just think it's you know okay, sure. I just think like I I, I assume later episodes and later seasons do stuff like this in a more kind of nuanced, subtle, graceful way. So we go back this, to the village and yeah. they're at the, uh, the beatnik bar and there's a guy on stage reading a newspaper of like just a bunch of like marriage announcements, um, as performance art. Very weird. Sure. Um, they hang out at a table. Don wants to switch seats with him so he can sit next to Midge. And he's just like, no way. And like, I love that because again, it's Don trying to exert power and like he folds like immediately. He's just like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, he like, it's very, it's not, it's not like he's used to. It's very boyish. Like it's like a high school thing. Yes. Like, you know, or like a middle school thing. Just kind of like, Hey, let me sit there. Like, no, <laughs> I uh, love it though. No, because dude. like, it, it's so great to see Don kind of outside of a world of power that he usually holds because he's the well-dressed wealthy guy, white mm. guy. He's now in a situation where he stands out, he sticks out, he doesn't have any power here. He considers himself an artist, but like the art that he's surrounded by right now is completely foreign to him, particularly as a guy who's been reading a lot in this episode and consuming a lot of things. I think that this is just another painful reminder that he's a poser, right? Um, That he could be a beatnik like this if he was Dick Whitman, but he's not. He's Don Draper, which means that we can't just, you know, yeah. He has no place to hang his coat. Yeah, no place. Th- oh, well, what a what an observation from Will Ashton here. He has I entered mean, Babylon. That's what he Notice, says. That, that's, that's what he says. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're talking and everything. Roy's talking about how he wants to set up a cooperative theater, uh, which, uh, you know, he stole Will Ashton and I's idea. We're going to do that eventually. Um, and then uh, Will finds out that John's in advertising and Will asks John, you know, how do you sleep at night? And I told yeah. Will, you know, on a bed made of money. <laughs> right. That's what you said to me when I was in California. You like, I, I was like, real talk, how do you sleep at night with what you're doing? It's like, easy. On that bed, sweet, sweet bed made of money. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so they, they argue a bunch. And, you know, it's great. I mean, Midge is just like, you guys want to poke it out at the urinal? Because, like, I think she's getting a kick out of it, like a small kick out of the whole situation. She just um, wants them to kiss, you know. I know. She's just like, this would be a pretty fun threesome. And yeah. she's got like, it would have, you know, they, the audience would, would love it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, AMC could have handled it in 2007, I think. Sure. Um, so uh, Ian, the guy mentioned earlier, takes the stage. Uh, he's played by David Carbonara, who is the guy, he's the composer of the show. Um, it's a nice little, you know, role for him in this quick little thing. Huh. And using the mandolin, he sings By the Waters of Babylon, which is a song that came out uh, later that decade, I think either at the end of the decade or in the early 70s. So kind of implying that like this is you know a song that the artist had had for a long time, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But 
as they play this song, which is very haunting, it's very melancholic. Um, we see a montage. This is one of the first times, I think the first time the show ever does like a cross cut montage, but we will see more stuff like this, which is, uh, definitely a staple of Mad Men where we see all the different characters from the episode and we kind of like tie up all the loose ends. It's more graceful, elegant way to do it than we've seen in some of the earlier episodes, I think. Um, so we see, uh, I think the first one we see is Rachel's like Rachel's kind of like, I don't know, like I love Don, but I have this tie in my hands. And then Betty is playing dress up with Sally. So kind of calling back to the Belgian lipstick thing we see. And then we've ended with Joan and Roger getting dressed in the hotel room. And then finally, they take the birdcage, they go to the room, and they're waiting for different cars. And I think it's a very poetic ending to the episode. And it's one of the reasons I think this is one of the one of the best episodes of the season. Uh, I think it's my number oh, wow. two. But uh, oh. yeah. But that, oh, yeah, you kind of gloss over um, the the lady in between the um, the composer guy that's playing the Babylon song and the um, the guy reading the newspaper. Who's oh like yeah, the Fidel adding, Castro. You well, know. but it's another example of like a woman like asserting her power. Yeah, yeah. A powerful man, and also like. But then they're like, take your shirt off, and she does. Yeah, take your shirt off, which you know, kind of demeaning, but she uses it as a means of like femininity and power yes and also like as it's happening um midge is uh indirectly or you know directly exposing herself to don and he catches a glimpse and it's, you know playing into those themes again there you go don's getting yeah. quite a view <laughs> i guess uh, <laughs> yeah so uh, anyway i think it's a great episode um good up. but what do you think do you love it it's a good oh, or you only liked it? I liked it. In yeah, between? I liked it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a good up. I don't know if I'd say it's one of my favorites, but I think it has a lot to ruminate on. I just think some of what it's doing isn't particularly subtle uh, or nuanced, but I think it's all very good. I think for me, it's like tied for number two um, with Marriage What's of your Figaro. Number okay. uh, my number one hasn't happened yet, so I don't want to talk about it yet. Oh, but is it shoot? I'm not going to tell you, okay. Ashton. You're going to have to kind of just wait. Um, okay. The next episode is going to be Red in the Face, which is another, I mean, oof. Red in the Face. Like, it's not my favorite episode of the series, but it could be, actually. It's pretty great. Um, okay. First season has some really good bangers. It, it may not be the best season, but I do think that it has like a really good collection of memorable episodes. Um, but uh, yeah, any any other like things, like any last... Uh, you know, things we we might not have uh, gotten into yet? I mean, I don't know. I guess I think my favorite so far is uh, the second one, Ladies Room, uh, which really according to IMDb is the lowest rated episode of the season. So I don't know if that's... A, that's weird. Um, I think it's because there was a bit of a drop off where people were kind of like, mm, this show's too much art for me, maybe is what people were saying. Uh, that's know, a kinder so. way of looking at it. Uh, my read was that IMDb is a, broadly Chaos. speaking, very misogynistic site <laughs> oh uh, I, not not from like the owners of it i mean like the people who like vote yeah. and still use imdb on a regular basis tend to i was, yeah, I was yeah. also going to reference sorry i forgot um i was going to point this out for an episode that's called babylon it's fitting that this is probably the most like amount of sex we've ever gotten in an episode to date or of all time to date let's see i, I don't know like if another gets... episode has this much actually hmm there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, but it's all, you know, like... Yeah, people getting hot and heavy. Post, Lots of buckets post. of kisses. 
Yeah, you know, but I mean, it's like all pre and post coitus, you know, it's not like. Oh, yeah, I mean, of. but that's that's all a madman. Like, we don't really get, you know. Anyway. Sure. Our voyeurism aside, uh, it's time for us yeah. to leave the one-way mirror and head back out into the real world. So we'll be back next week to talk about Red in the Face. Uh, I can't okay. wait to start it. And uh, yeah, I'm, we're, we're getting there. I think we're, we're coming up to, I want to say, almost the halfway mark. Uh, we have many, one, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven episodes left. And we're on six. That's right. All right. Uh, well, hopefully Mike will be back. If not, uh, we're just going to be back to the two of us. We'll do our week. best in his absence if it comes to that. So thank you for listening to Mad Men Men. If there's anything we forgot or didn't point out or didn't point out correctly, be sure oh, to hit us up and let us know. I mean, that's a give. That's a certainty. For sure. You know, yeah. There, well, yeah, I mean, purposely, there's so much else to talk about, but we want to keep this thing as short as we can. So we'll see you all back for the next episode of Mad Men Men.